everybody. One more session before morning tea. Can you do that? Yep. You feeling all right? Okay. Uh, what great sessions we've had already. I don't know uh, about you, but I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to hearing more from Craig. I want to hear that, that story of him losing his shoulder. I have, nothing delights me more than hearing about Craig or seeing Craig in physical pain. So I'm, that story, more of his preaching and his teaching, of course, so electric. I'm a little bit nervous after Warren's, Warren's session. I was about to start with the welcome to country. Uh, <laughs> I'll just skip that. My name's Tom and I'm, uh, my pronouns are he, him, and I'm uh, a white male. But because my people were Scottish, I do actually descend from a, uh, an oppressed people group. Uh, so <coughs> if you're English, you're my oppressor, uh, and I identify with that. Uh, but can you um, uh, uh, get into the mindset with me as we think about the idea of, of deconstruction, or as the Bible would call it, apostasy. And, and, and this is actually so organically linked to what we've already been looking at. Uh, uh, the gospel is our foundation, the power of God. Reject that. Be distracted from that. Seek to hear more things than that uh, uh, or less than that or more exciting things than that at church. You'll end up really landing on, on standpoint epistemology. You'll find the coolest, most enticing philosophy of the day. You'll take that standpoint epistemology. And, and then once you do that, maybe this is a warning to pastors. Maybe this is a warning to those who are willing to dabble in standpoint epistemology. Yeah, I need more, more uh, uh, minority voices to really know truth. God hasn't embedded all truth in the word and made it understandable. He's embedded in people groups and, and experiences. Once you do that, you've actually swung open the door and the very next logical problem on your hand is deconstruction. Deconstruction, I'm going to have to go back to some, 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 uh, an, uh, an Algerian Jewish philosopher, do a little bit of groundwork. I hope we're alert and awake enough that uh, while we can smell the food being delivered and, of course, the coffee's going. Let me, let me start with <clears throat> addressing the, the trend of deconstruction. Now, maybe that, new, that language is entirely new to you. Maybe you're very familiar. Maybe you're painfully all too aware of it with friends of yours. Let me address it. First thing, let's define it, evangelical deconstruction, evangelical deconstruction is the process of taking a step back and taking apart one's long-held beliefs with the aim of questioning assumptions in ways that you haven't before so that you can remove beliefs that were held blindly so that you can then arrive at a more cohesive, logical, acceptable form of Christianity. I want to just distinguish this and apostasy as a whole from having a crisis of faith. We've all been there, and if you haven't, bearer of bad news up here, you're going to go through it. At some point, you question everything you know. It's as if you're left in a vacuum of, of depression and despair, and all that you know is that you can't be trusted. All that you know is that you're a filthy, useless sinner that can be certain of nothing. We all go through that in a crisis of faith. We question what we believe, who we've believed, whether God is real, whether he loves us, whether the gospel is... We've all gone through that. We're distinguishing a crisis of faith where we, where we question our own, our own salvation. We're, questioning, we're, we're distinguishing that from deconstruction, which is a more stable, they would think, or a more intentional stepping back to question the truth that we have received. Taking apart your belief system to better fit your experience of life and your, your new convictions. You've experienced more things in life. 
You've heard more opinions. You've listened to more minority voices because that was apparently needed to be done. And now you take a step back and say, how much of this whole gospel thing, this evangelical truth, this faith once for all delivered to the saints, how much of that is actually trustworthy? One of the strong points of postmodernism, which we are no doubt seeing the effects of, is redefining terms, using the same word to mean different things, using the giving new and unnecessary titles, more sexy titles, to old doctrines or beliefs. And one of the weak points of evangelicalism is rolling over and allowing our terms to be redefined. It creates intentionally, it creates confusion. What today's world calls deconstruction, the Bible calls apostasy. It's from the Greek word which means to neglect, to reject, to fall away, or revolt, to defect. It is addressed in some of the most shocking portions of the New Testament. Go with me to Hebrews 10. Apostasy is addressed in some of the most shocking terms, in some of the most difficult passages of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27 says this to Christians. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no long, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Get into your mind the harrowing threat that the writer of the Hebrews is getting into the mind of every Christian. If I reject Christ, and this does not mean Christians who still go on struggling and fighting against sin and lose against it more often than you wish. That's not the going on sinning. The going on sinning refers to the rejection of the right way of living into the lifestyle of unrighteousness, to, to go back to sin like a dog returns to its vomit. To do that is to walk away from the one presentation of atonement, of forgiveness, of salvation that we heard taught to us this morning, and to turn to nothingness. On the false promise that there was other ways, that there was other epistemologies, that there was other voices, we walk away from that which is given by God and we return to nothing. So that nothing then stands before us and God. We have no mediator, no priest, no Jesus, no lamb slain for us. We have nothing, us and God and our sins. And therefore the expectation is a fury fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 6, go back a couple of chapters, verses 4 and 6. I think in even more difficult language. For it is impossible... In the case of those, this is verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again, or they, they would be crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That is to mean, what he's saying here is to have a sound knowledge of evangelical truth, that is the gospel, the word of God, the reality that is preached in those core tenets of the faith, to have a sound understanding of those things and then return to the lifestyle of sin, no longer identifying with or believing in those truths. So, so to be baptized into the covenant, to know it to be true and then reject it is to apostatize. It's the worst state a human being can be in. 
It's worse than being an unbeliever. It's worse than being the, 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 the barbarian who's never heard of the Bible. It's worse than that. It's to enter in, to then spurn the grace of God and leave. It is the most fearful state that a human being can possibly be in outside of the actual fires of their condemnation. And this whole topic has been taken and made light of. It's, it, it, it's, it's not all that serious, the deconstructionists have us, have us think. Even modern-day evangelical pastors, it's just not all that serious. You, know, you don't go to Hebrews 10 and threaten people with fire when they're saying that one of the reasons they're leaving the church is because they kept getting threatened with fire. To reject standpoint epistemology, this thing does it, I'm fine to do it. Pastors ought to do and speak in the terms and ways and methods that the Bible speaks. I don't hear the Bible or the biblical authors apologizing nearly as much as I hear pastors today leaning into and inviting in with, I, I can't even do it, my jacket's too tight. I don't know how they do it in such tight clothing. The experiences of the deconstructors, or Mark chapter 3, verse 28 and 29. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. What a glorious truth. All sins will be the forgiven of man. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. Good news? Yes, because the gospel can be preached, known, believed in. But whatever, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whatever blas whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. Context, Jesus is speaking to the people who knew full well, this guy's from God, his power's from God, and he's making us look terrible. So in order to avoid the awkward truth, let's create a new truth like a real good postmodernist. Let's create our experienced truth as standpoint epistemologists and say, you know, we believe it's our experience that in fact, and this is a lie, this is, a, this is just a smokescreen cover lie because we know the truth, but we'll say this guy has a demon. He's doing his power from Satan. And Jesus responds to them as to say, if you know the truth, you have the oracles of God. Pharisees. And then you're, you're, you're rejecting that truth in Christ in order to, uh, using the tool of a lie. No, 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 no. We actually have a new theory. He's actually demon-possessed, empowered by Satan. Jesus cuts through it and says, I see your heart. You know what is true. You make up a lie in order to walk away from the truth. That is apostasy. So let me just clarify. This is one of the most misunderstood and pastorally difficult topics the sin that can never be forgiven, the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not questioning somebody's miracle-working legitimacy. It's not that. It's not refusing to be prayed for by an apostle. You give him the right hand of fellowship. Him or her. No, not her. No, I can't advocate that. You give you, you, that, that right hand of fellowship. Go away from me. <laughs> it... The, the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is the same, it is no more than and no less than apostasy, which simply means not unbelief, not mere unbelief, but entering into belief and then under the guise of a lie, walking away from that unbelief permanently. Now, here's the, the human difficulty. How do we know when somebody's done that permanently? There's some really obvious examples 
when they have so become an enemy of the cross that we can say with some confidence, that's a, that's a sealed apostasy. They're like Esau. Even if they tried to seek repentance with tears, God would not give them that new birth. They are actually in a living death, sealed for condemnation, impossible to convert. But confidence on that is so slim. Really, I would encourage you to be confident of somebody's true apostasy, having committed the unforgivable sin only when their coffin is going down into the grave. Till then you pray, you evangelize, you hope. But this question of apostasy is obviously in the, in, 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 in the New Testament spoken of in such stark, threatening, scary terms. <clears throat> but the deconstructionist movement wants to make light of that. Is deconstruction always apostasy? The answer is no. Or at least let's, let's not make the unforgivable sin using the words deconstruction. Okay, that's not the unforgivable sin. Uh, because people mean, as in our world it always happens, people mean different things by that word at different times. Originally, the language, this is going to be a little bit of a helpful um, uh, 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 overview of deconstruction. Originally, it was developed by the philosopher, like we said before, the Algerian uh, uh, philosopher back in the 60s, Jacques Derrida. And he, he was a postmodern philosopher. He, uh, philosopher. Uh, he had a postmodern way of studying scripture, which was to dismantle our excessive loyalty to any idea. Don't be extremely loyal to any idea or ideology. And then you'll discover the aspects of truth that lie in the opposite. Someone tells you Jesus is truly God. Don't hold on to that too tightly. Break it down, take the truth out of what you think is helpful, maybe something like we, we can all have a connection with the divine, and then turn to its immediate opposite. Jesus was not God. Jesus was a liar, a, a fool, and a maniac. Dismantle that and take some of the truth out of that as well. Then what you have, as Derrida would explain, a, 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 a deconstructionist attempt towards truth. He loved confusion and doubt. They were good and healthy states for us to be in from time to time about ultimate truth, because ultimate truth cannot exist, much less is it knowable. Because if you are sure, then you are narrow-minded to Derrida. To the deconstructionists, if you are sure, or in their language, if you're proud enough to think that you have the truth of God and other people don't, you're narrow-minded. It's the height of hubris to think that you are human, rejecting confusion and, 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 and vagueness. You're going to land on a solid foundation and say, I know truth, here it is. That, that's the height of hubris. Unless, as Warren just told us, God's actually smart enough to speak. You're not calling me proud. You're calling God an idiot and an imbecile. Have you ever sat maybe under a class, maybe on the train, maybe in a church with somebody who, who thinks of themselves so intelligently and can communicate with almost nobody less smart than them. They're actually so dumb, they can't communicate to kids. They're so dumb, they can't make their ideas understandable to anybody else. They're the only person who can actually understand them, not because they're so smart, because they're a babbling fool. That's what they would make God out to be. You think you can arrive at God's truth? No, I just don't think he's an idiot. When he seeks to be understood and speak, lo and behold, he's able to do it. 
Two minds that he made, and he knows that are not God minds. Our minds. He knew who he was speaking to, Psalm 103. He knows that we are dust, and he has compassion on us and reveals his light into our darkness. So, <clears throat> Derrida would then criticize logocentrism. Logocentrism, which is a way of, you'll hear in that word, the logos, the, the idea of word, word-centrism. He would criticize the way of thinking that Truth is communicated primarily through the logos or through the words. Rather, he would prefer the subjectivity of truth coming through art and sound and color and feeling and motion. He is therefore a front runner of the postmodernist movement. Now, now, and now thinking how that all applies, and we, we've touched on it, how that all comes into, sneaks into the, the minds of evangelicals so that they then become ex-evangelicals. That's the cool new sexy term for being an ex-evangelical. They moved two letters out and put it together. That was pretty cool. Uh, uh, thinking about how this looks in, in evangelical deconstruction, there was a helpful article by John Bloom on Desiring God, and, and he says uh, <laughs> that there's really four main types of of people who are using the language of deconstruction. First of all, there are those who, who would say, I've had an excessive, unhealthy, unchecked loyalty to a person or a movement. And I'm gonna take some steps back and actually ask, is this church culture actually healthy and biblical? That's good. Secondly, some people who use the deconstructionist language would say, I just don't know why I believe what I believe. I believe because my parents told me. I grew up with this. I just realized as I'm starting to engage with other people in the world, I don't know why I believe any of this. I actually hardly know what I believe about these things. Are these beliefs assumptions or are they convictions based on scriptural passages? I'm going to step deeper into the word of God in order to, to, to test my practices and inform my mind. That's good. Many of you, are, or many people at Hope, or many people at whatever church you go to, probably arrived there in your young adult years doing a little bit of that. I used to believe this about church leadership. Now I believe this. I used to believe this about the inspiration of Scripture. Now I believe this. This about the gifts of the Spirit. Now I believe this. This about the, 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 the role of the church. Now I believe this. That's, that's good and healthy. Thirdly, and this is where it starts going downhill, the idea of saying, I've come to realize that evangelicalism is not as tolerant of my new beliefs, enabling of my sins, or reputable among my peers. I will now dismantle it, gut it of the unpopular parts, and reassemble it in a way that I approve of. This is deconstruction, which lends itself to liberal Christianity. Progressive Christians will fly, fly the rainbow flag and, and all of that. Reverend Susie, she'll be one of these guys. This is a form of apostasy. Fourthly, and this is the, the, the real big way that it's really being used mainly today, is where deconstruction is framed in the language of, I don't like what I'm hearing about this Bible. I don't like what I'm hearing about evangelicalism. I will question everything, and where it fails to satisfy my reason or standards, I'll reject it. And this usually ends up in things like paganism, atheism, agnosticism some form of apostasy, a walking away from the truth once believed and held into darkness. And here's, here's my, my opinion is that we should reject all uses of the word deconstruction. I don't think it is ever helpful in any way to use the language of deconstruction even in those positive ways that I just said. I know what they're saying. We should lose the word deconstruction because I'm not a postmodernist. Deconstruction has a meaning. 
it's usually and always going towards the last one, apostasy. So we should remove all uses of the word deconstruction in a positive way and just always think of deconstruction as apostasy, first of all, because it is by nature postmodern. It is by nature po- The only way it makes sense to say, I need to dis- deconstruct the truth is if there is no ultimate unbreakdownable truth. If there is no anvil of God's word that every other philosophy is smashed upon. So deconstruction actually only makes sense as an idea from the postmodernist lens. We, we reject postmodernism that there is no ultimate truth. Therefore, we should not use the language of deconstruction. Second of all, it is the posture of deconstruction that we also need to reject, not just the conclusions. Was it apparent to you and evident to you as I was sort of explaining the ways that people would question their beliefs that from the get-go, it sets the questioner, the individual, as the authority over and above the word of God. So, so, in other words, let me say this. Even if you went through a period of deconstruction, you pulled the Bible apart, you assessed it, you pulled evangelical faith apart, you assessed it, you pulled your beliefs apart, you assessed all of them, and by the end of this six 12-month process, you found yourself back in your evangelical church with every single one of the most historic, reformed, evangelical doctrines that you used to believe plus some, you still don't have the Christian faith. Because the question becomes, not just what do you believe, but why do you believe that? Why is it constructed like that? Why do you believe? What holds it together? To which the answer becomes, me. It's like this because I approved of it. I believe all of the evangelical truths. I believe all of the Reformation confessions. But I do so because I approved of it. So the whole posture of deconstruction says, I'm allowed to put God in a box, chop him up, and call him to account for the things that he has and hasn't said. So we should not use the language of deconstruction. John Williamson, a deconstructionist sort of leading thought guy, I use the term guy loosely. It's examining, he says, deconstruction is examining your faith from the inside, looking for potential weakness. The analogy I like to use is, before you set sail on a cruise ship, you'll see it in the harbor, and people applying a fresh coat of paint and sealing up the gaps and dealing with the rust. This is done so it doesn't sink once you get out to sea. And that's essentially the same thing that we're saying about faith. It's about taking ownership over what you believe and potentially letting go of some of the things that no longer work. Now, initially, that sounds innocent and like a pretty good analogy. I mean, shouldn't we all walk around our own beliefs and and patch up the things that are unbiblical? Yes, but he's not saying patch up the things that are unbiblical. He's saying whether it's biblical or not, you need to patch it up, paint over it, remove it if it doesn't work. So, so, So we could rather use the analogy, if we wanted that boat analogy, we could say the ship is my faith. My belief, my character, my spiritual life, and I'm walking around with a bucket of the Bible or or a blueprint of the Bible, and I'm testing my faith according to scriptures and patching it up as needs. That's a good analogy. 
But what he's doing is putting the Bible, the word of the, the triune God, into the dock and assessing it and rejecting what parts of it he doesn't think are acceptable. So that, so that now what he's holding in his hands is his own opinions and cultural own opinions. That's the whole posture of deconstruction. Thirdly, the reason we should reject the language of deconstruction is because it removes the fear of judgment. To deconstruct, they're saying, I used my autonomy. I questioned the system. I came to my own conclusions. The writer of the Hebrews says, no, you rejected the truth. You've fallen away. You've gone on sinning deliberately. You've blasphemed the spirit. You've apostatized. There is no salvation left for you. You can speak in postmodern terms or you can speak in biblical terms. I advocate that we should remove the language of deconstruction unless we're referring to apostasy and then always be sure, quick shot, to mention that this is really apostasy, what you're talking about. So on, on the basis of, of books, I don't think I've had a more pastorally depressing month than going and reading and listening to podcasts, blogs, and books of ex-evangelicals who have deconstructed. That's just my honesty out there. But in listening to so many of them, here's common threads that I've seen. There are five common threads. First of all, first of all, the, the ex-evangelical, usually they'll have a podcast, they're sipping their latte, they're doing something like The ex-evangelical will say, they'll assert that I've been in the inner circle. I was an evangelical. I was raised in the church. My parents baptized me at 15 and again at 16 and again at 17 after each of the youth conferences, right? I was in it. I was a real, I was in ministry, or I was a pastor's wife, or I was in a Christian family, whatever they say. Basically, the frame is, I was a real evangelical Christian. Don't you dare tell me I wasn't a true Christian. You know, oh, you just fell away because you weren't true. They hate that. If by that what you mean is, well, you just didn't understand the truth. No, they're right. We shouldn't say to somebody, well, the only reason you fell away is because you didn't know the truth. Well, that would be to say that apostasy is an impossibility. Now, there are people who have accepted truth and then rejected it, just not known it as we ought to know it in a personal, revived way. But anyway, they'll say, first of all, I was in the inner circle. I'm therefore, taking from Warren's standpoint epistemology idea, I'm therefore an authority on the matter. I've experienced it. First step. Second step. They identify the whole evangelical system and the teachers who represent it, the pastors, the seminary lecturers, the parents, etc., as tyrannical abuse of power and authority. In other words, this is just sheer postmodernism. Since there is no absolute truth, and then you've got people on staff raising their kids in the churches who claim all of that truth, and then enforce that truth, you've got nothing but a massive sham and an abuse of power because the truth doesn't exist. It's like the bank promising you and holding you captive to a debt, loaning you all this money that they don't have. You realize it's just the Prince of Nigeria who sent you a dodgy email. Don't answer those emails. Or the thousandth winner to the website gets an iPad, those sorts of things. And you realize they're holding me captive in a system and the walls don't exist. There is no truth. Why would they call me to submit to that truth? So secondly, the whole system as a whole is actually abusive from the ground up, whether people realize it or not, because it is a false monopoly on power. Thirdly, these evangelicals then conveniently 
get to revise their history and testimony. It's the most depressing thing you can do is listen to ex-evangelical testimonies. I just think as I'm listening to what I would have said to you as a pastor, that's not the gospel. Who the hell told you that? But listening to their testimonies, they then revise their history so as to say, now that I look back on my conversion or my childhood, I can now see I was always under abuse. I was happy, I was stable, I had one of those evil, horrible, male-led nuclear families that had dinner most nights of the week. I'm sorry if I just gave anybody a trigger there. <laughs> no, I remember all of that and I realized I was living in the abuse. Let me say, I was a victim. And because I was a victim, any part that I played in victimizing others is actually relieved of me. I'm actually not guilty because I'm a victim, standpoint epistemology. I'm, a, I'm actually, I know I was one of the bad guys that I said are so wrong and abusive, but if I can make myself a victim and step into that intersectional identity, I'm relieved and atoned for for all of my sin. Actually, I only ever acted out of trauma, big capital T trauma. One of the biggest keys, or call it an excuse, in the ex-evangelical world and thinking. If you get your mind around a biblical view of trauma, bad things happen to you. It can reshape parts of your brain. You need to be aware of, 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 of how much you're reacting to things in your past rather than responding to the truth of God's word, right? So in other words, reject standpoint epistemology. Yeah, yeah, there's a biblical understanding. And then there's the deconstructionist understanding of trauma. This is a big word in their language, which means trauma is, is almost like a Jekyll and a Hyde. Uh, it's Frankenstein's monster. I, it's kind of like, I'm, I know some of you would have watched it, Moon Knight, the, the movie Moon, uh, the, the, the TV series Moon Knight, where this, this superhero has an alternate reality. He just wakes up in the morning and realizes he's fought, fought crime and he's shot people in the head and now he's just waking up in the street. In the, in the street. It's as if people can say, wow, look at all the evil things that I said were evil that I was doing for 20 years in the church. Oh, that was just my trauma acting out. Now I'm free of the responsibility and the guilt. I am a victim, capital V. Fourthly, then they start, as good postmodernists, renaming everything so that doctrines you believed now have an official name, a condition attached to them. Sins that you used to believe in are given new names, either conditions or just healthy acts of sexuality. So this one deconstructionist writes and she says, I was always told to, to mortify my sinful lusts which wage war against my soul. Now I see that was child abuse because it was sexual repressive suppression. The fear of death that she had in the Southern Baptist Church was renamed by a therapist, Rapture a Panic Attack Syndrome. I chuckled when I read it too, but I'm, I think they were serious. The fear of death coming. I'm going to die. I'm going to go somewhere. I feel a fear of death because I'm a guilty sinner. Oh, no, friend, friend, friend. You're just actually traumatized acting out of a, 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 an apocalypse attack syndrome, panic attack syndrome. Don't fear death. Guilt of sin, whenever you feel guilty of sin, that's actually just trauma from abuse. You don't have to listen to that whatsoever. 
Submission to headship, whether as a wife or to a godly father, whether you realize it or not, thriving in those situations, women, you are actually under a very subtle spiritual abuse. The doctrine of original sin, that we are naturally sinners, is actually retitled self-hatred and a low self-esteem. Loving, warm church community is retitled cultish manipulation techniques. I hope that you receive rich, warm manipulation techniques this weekend uh, from the cult of Hope Reformed Baptist Church, apparently. (coughs) Whenever you were, in fact, they go so far as to say this, whenever you were taught anything, it was mind control. Except apparently when you go to the therapist and she tells you how to think about everything. Then fifthly, once they've retitled everything, I'm an authority, I can judge this, I reject it all as an abuse of power because no real truth exists. And here's how we'll rephrase everything. Fifthly, then we have the grounds to reject evangelicalism as a harmful system. It reduces down to an abusive extremist movement. In fact, everybody, and this is what one of the authors was saying, every single person, all of you, right? Every single person in the evangelical system is either an abusive extremist victimizing people or an idiotic victim that can't tell left from right. That's why you're still in it. You're either victimizing and gaining from that abuse or you're being victimized and you don't even realize it. You're smiling so often because you're so traumatized. You have such a healthy marriage because they're controlling you. You either need, therefore, to be saved from it or prosecuted from abuse. An actual advocate is saying this. You don't under... uh, 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 Yeah, I'm telling you, don't underestimate the power of the rhetoric of trauma in all of this. In fact, there's a new syndrome being named by psychologist Marlene Winnell called RTS, Religious Trauma Syndrome. Of course... I think most of us would know there is legitimate cases, far too many, of spiritual abuse. I think that there'd be a minority who haven't experienced something like that in the room. Of course there's that. We're not talking about that which is resolved through Psalm 19, the word of God that makes wise the mind, that revives the soul, that enlightens the eyes. No, no, they're not talking about that. They're saying religious trauma syndrome. Your regret, your fear of death, you're feeling guilty. It's all just your religious trauma coming out. Callous your heart. Blaspheme the spirit. Reject the truth. Go on sinning. You're a traumatized victim. Jamie Lee Finch, who was an author, she grew up in Southern Baptist churches as a child and was involved in Acts 29 churches as an adult, a, 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 a decry of neither of those things. She is now a lot more neutral, having moved out of the evangelical world. She is now a self-proclaimed sex witch, which is really funny because that's in the last line of her book when she's been saying the whole time, they were sexually repressive, telling me if I was left to myself, I'd be some pagan, sexual, lustful lunatic. Showed them, Jamie. (laughs) Yeah. No, but I'm sure she's neutral with the way she comes uh, up to it. She says, evangelicalism is a cult that radicalizes people so that they are 
physiologically, psychologically maladaptive, and it leads to extremism, she says, quote, it is designed to make people passive, dependent, and emotionally unbalanced, more easily manipulated and controlled. If I want anything of my church and the people that I'm called to pastor, it is the opposite of that. Impossible to manipulate, critically thinking, tough people. That's what she says. Evangelicalism evangelicalism is designed to produce that. Its dangers include exclusivity, a, a rigid exclusivity, a casting out of other people, judgment towards other people. And, and there's, this, there's this constant mindset in evangelicalism that people who think differently on, on a wide array of topics are dangerous. Jamie Lee Finch, it sounds like what you just did was make a very exclusive statement that would judge people as either abusers or victims and then call the whole system, because they think differently to you, dangerous. So in her own terms, Jamie Lee Finch is now the leader of a cult in my mind and is dangerous and ought to be prosecuted. And all of her victims or her people who are paying her a lot of money for her religious trauma, that's now a, an avenue of, uh, of income. She is now a professional deconstructing coach and advocate and therapist. A cult leader, apparently. In that you can see the, 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 the inconsistency of anything other than a biblical worldview. If truth doesn't exist, you can't tell us that we're abusive or wrong. So how should we respond to a legitimate enemy out there, a legitimate mindset out there, because, because it, we, we ignore it to our peril. Don't just flick it off and say it's inconsistent. How, how do we fight this? First of all, to the in, individual, maybe here today, who is, who is tempted with the idea of deconstruction, maybe that's why you signed up, can somebody at an apologetics conference give me some help because I'm so tempted to leap out the window into the, into the vacuum of sin, destruction, but but that's what I feel I need to do. That's what I'm feeling drawn to do to you. Hebrews says, gives us the, the line of thinking, if every sin was punished severely in the Old Testament for those who walked away, how much more severely will you, will, is the judgment that you should fear if you walk away from that where the Son of God was crucified in your place and for your sin? Now, I know how the inner deconstructionist is going to say, I knew you'd say that. They told me you'd say something about hell. Yeah, I'm one of the guys who believes the Bible and stands on it. I'm never going to be the pastor. What, what, what you're asking me to do, if you're, if you're tempted with deconstruction, apostasy, the falling away, the returning to an old way, if you're tempted with that, what you want me to do is, is sympathize with your unbelief and say, I get it, I, the problem's not you. It's this unclear word of God that, that, that is just so incomplete and unhelpful. The problem's not you. That would be to feed your unbelief and undermine your faith. Woe, an eternal woe on any pastor who does that. My job is to pour out straight from the bottle the, the, the truth of the word of God, slide it across the bar to you, tell you to take it straight, neat, no ice, and then explain the colors and the tones that it burns your throat. I know this truth burns, but where else do you go to find the words of eternal life? The reality is that Jesus Christ has come into the world of, 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 of sinners against him and has died and now sympathizes with you from the throne, though far away he seems, he is with you and calls you sympathetically to draw near to him. For he sits on the throne of grace. The Bible addresses, let me encourage you, the Bible addresses every question you have. 
including the crisis of faith. Don't deconstruct, flee to Jesus in his word. Like Job, you haven't suffered worse than Job. Like John the Baptist, who was having this crisis of faith in prison. Is Jesus really the Messiah? I banked a lot on this. Like Peter, who had the crisis of denying Christ entirely and then wondering if there was a way back for him. Like Thomas, who fled. Like the psalmists, who say so often, I I don't know God, I don't know truth, I'm in this despair, my soul clings to the dust, yet soul, hope in God. The Bible has those experiences in here to affirm to you that you are not some one-of-a-kind, unsavable loser. You're a human being. You're made from dust. You're finite and fallible. And God reveals to us in such a way as he knows that. There is no question, there is not a question you can ask that you, there is no question that you can't ask of God in the Bible except to ask him to submit to you. Secondly, to the church and to the pastors. The obvious call, as you read all of these testimonials, is for crying out loud, would someone just exposit the Bible honestly and faithfully? Like, tell them of a real hell. Don't skim over that. Give them an all-encompassing view of a sovereign, holy, omnipotent, eternal, infinite God. They have these tiny views of God and he's so easy to throw in the bin. If they would have this idea of God that is unapproachable, who dwells in, 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 in invisible light, who, who is so... If you were to see him, you don't start asking him questions. You fall down as if dead. If they were to receive this kind of preaching. Now, I know even people under the Apostle Paul and Jesus would apostatize. But Paul still said, I'm at least innocent of the blood of those who are falling away. Because I opened up the full counsel of the Word of God. So it's not on me. Would that pastors thought of that judgment day when they will be asked of every sinner who ever heard their voices, like Judson knew, did they hear from you an unapologetic unsugared delivery of gospel truth on every page. Pastors should have the, the, the confidence to preach to the questions of the day and address them. Do the hard work, Christians, pastors, of, of approaching and addressing the hard topics, the, the difficult accusations of the word and address them like the word really is authoritative. And then thirdly, you friends, you Christians, you have friends tempted to or falling away. I need to ask you, before, before you start engaging them, before I give you the, the, the encouragement to pursue them, first of all, ask of yourself, are you apologetic for what the Bible says? Will you, as Warren has told us, give some credence to everything they say because technically they're a victim. They do have something to say that the Bible not, might not have said. Apology for what the Bible says even if you believe it, is one of the first steps towards apostasy. Apology for it, even if you know it technically says that. I would give you this encouragement. 1 John 5, James 5, and the end of Jude all end with an exhortation after encouraging maturity in the faith. They end with, and if you've heard anything that I've said, pursue those Christians who are falling away and struggling. 
It's just a normal part of the Christian life, that part of your responsibility as a mature, knowledgeable, sanctified Christian is to pursue those around you. It is the business of ours to help with our struggling friends. Jude ends this way, and this is where I will end. Have mercy on those who doubt. You don't shame anyone back in the kingdom for, for asking questions or for, for just not knowing, for going through the experiences that the most mature Christians do. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. That's the guys who are, who are so close to, to what would feel like an absolute and eternal and permanent apostasy. Flee to them, chase them, grab them, pull them back via your prayers, via your words, via your love. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear. You're getting close now. This is a fearful thing to go after those who are so deep down. Don't think that you're the Messiah. You talk to anybody, you'll get them back in the kingdom. Save others with fear. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen? Amen. Amen.